Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Here's the third and final part of the interview where Horace Didu and I discuss the Japanese automotive industry and how Tesla and Apple will disrupt the car industry. Please enjoy. Yep, we've gone through, you know, disruption. We've gone through Apple in China. And now I want to come to the last part of that is to ask you about cars because I listen to <laughs> the same car podcast. And we talk a little bit about cars. Well, actually, you do talk about it. You do talk about Japanese cars. So I often hear you talk about European and US car brands. And, you know, I about that summer you spent the whole, you went to the Mercedes Museum, I think BMW place, right? I always wanted yes. to know what's your perception of Asian cars. I mean, I'm going just going to be very specific. Japanese cars because the Toyota yeah. invented the lean principle. You know, you have yeah. the Nissan GTR. What are your perception on Asian cars? Given that it is the well, Asia so yeah, I'm going to be more specific. Japan, I think, is better for me as well because mm-hmm. I don't have much to go on in terms of Korean cars yet. Uh, or Chinese, I just don't know them well. But in, in terms of Japan, so yes, Japan is responsible for the lean production method that the Toyota system, which is lean not just in terms of manufacturing, that, that actually kind of was copied already, but in, it's very lean in terms of also product development, engineering, and many other aspects of the business. So they really, really created efficiencies that no one can match. And as a result, Toyota is number one globally today in terms of volume and actually still the most profitable by margin. Then, And nowadays you can say that among the mass, so there's VW in Europe as the, sort of the giant uh, mainstream car company. Uh, so VW could represent Europe, GM could represent US, and, and Toyota could represent Japan. And you can maybe compare those three and, and, and think about that. And there's some nice studies about the numbers that they generate in terms of volume, product, uh, employees, and profits, and, and things of that kind. But I won't get into those bottom line numbers. I think what we need to understand is that there's sort of the, what is a cultural phenomenon, of what is it that makes the brands what they are. One observation I had when I went to Japan recently and it it struck me because I've seen this pattern before but when I when I looked down on the streets of Tokyo I would see lots and lots of cars and vehicles of all kinds and of course there were almost all Japanese if not all of them were Japanese and of course Japanese cars are really popular in the United States and in Europe as well much more perhaps in 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 the United States but if, if you were a big far, fan of cars, my son certainly is, is he can probably recite 3,000 different car names. And he could visually identify any car you see on the road. But if you were that way, you would look at the cars in Japan on the streets and not see one single car that was also for sale in the United States. And you could look on the streets, I mean, Japanese cars in the United States. So you could look at Japanese cars in the United States and memorize them all and then go to Japan and not recognize them, any of the cars you see on the street. That's an amazing thing because if you did that for Europe, there is no difference between a BMW or Mercedes or Volkswagen and sold in Europe or in North Asia America well, yeah. or, or Asia. Mm-hmm. The, the identity of the brand in terms of the, 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 the visual language, is absolutely rock solid. You, you know it's a BMW, you know it's a Mercedes at, at a thousand paces, 
I could not tell you. I mean, maybe there's a slight Toyota design language, but there's a very, very hard for me to tell you. Nissan from a Mitsubishi, from a maybe Subaru is slightly unique, but it, it's amazing that the conformability of Japanese cars to the local market. And by the way, Japanese cars in Europe for a long time were not available in that form in the United States, or, you know, they maybe have been some bit more overlap because of the size of cars in Europe versus Japan, the, even to the point where they call them something else. The Mazda Miata in the United States is the MX-5 in Europe. In the United States, you have the Acura brand. In Europe, you have the Honda, which is the same car. In Britain, you, you, you sell the Toyota GT86. I think that's it, right? Mm. But that Toyota is a scion in the United States. So Japan doesn't believe in a global definition of its brand. They are conforming to every market according to local taste. They will change the cars, design, body, engines. They will build even to the point where, you know, they have different crash mm. requirements. They will then launch local brands move brands around as they see fit and have no therefore very little identity and this is a curious thing because when you ask a european what is the most valuable thing about your cars they'll say the brand the identity the legacy the tradition everything that we built over 100 years yep, that's right and so the vw group owns everything from lamborghini to bentley you know a huge vast number of brands and each one has a, a distinct identity they wouldn't try to bring those in under the VW name. In fact, when they tried and they made a VW luxury car, it flopped, mm. right? The Phaeton. Uh, very good car, but you can could, you could see the resale value today is no better than a Passat, mm. you know, even though that car is like has a 16-cylinder engine or something like that. Right. So there's this problem. There's this problem. is like the notion in Europe is the very dependent on this tradition, this legacy, this identity, this notion of what it means to be that name. Whereas in Japan, I think they, they may try to build a little bit of that. And they've created Lexus to, to absorb that meaning, to essentially create that new meaning for mm -hmm. Toyota. Uh, and, and I think they're now introducing actually a Datsun. Nissan's going back to Datsun in some markets, I'm told. But it's like they're trying to it's, they create new brands like Scion in the U.S. to, to move below Toyota. So, so you have to have to Toyota is now middle of the range. So, you, so you, you've moved so far up from the bottom that now you need to put something at the bottom so you create Scion. Mm -hmm. But these, these, they're manufacturing brands. This is amazing. It's contrary to tradition, but I, to be honest, I think 90% of people don't care, <laughs> um, which is why they're successful. You, you, let's say you leave the planet for 10 years and you come back and you, you, you go to the car dealership and you don't recognize any of the names, but they're the same company. What's happened, you know? How did they cre create, you know, these new names all of a sudden? Whereas the opposite, the, the thinking in, 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 the, in Europe is exactly the opposite. Let's go dig up old names. Let's bring Bugatti from, the, from you know, ancient history. Let's make sure Lancia or Alfa Romeo are resuscitated. Let's, let's bring back Bentley and let's bring back, you know, Maybach. Maybach, who, do you remember Maybach? Nobody remembers Maybach. Maybach, it was obsolete a hundred years ago as a brand, mm. but they brought it back. So... Europe is looking backwards. They're looking to the history as the value proposition. 
Yeah, so you have a, a tendency to look to the past. You you look to nostalgia. You look to you know uh, the Porsche 911 is never never actually abandoned a 50 year, year old visual design. In fact, they tried the amusing story with the 911 is they tried to actually move from 911 to something more modern in the 1980s with with the 928. But actually, the old nostalgic. 911 was remaining much more popular, so they stuck with the rear engine and and all that. So Volkswagen went back to the original shape of the VW Beetle. Mini went try to you know advance under under BMW ownership, try to bring back the Mini shape. So very much what we're seeing with Europe is that you have this view to history as the the source of value. In the U.S., also you have many nostalgic cars in the sense of muscle cars and the shapes of cars which are not aerodynamic, which are not efficient, which are really trying to represent an era and trying to represent a feeling of power of. And technologically, they're very crude. Uh, of course, the pickup market in the U.S. is also fascinating to study because these are nominally, meaning uh, in name only, uh, utility vehicles, but they're never used as utility vehicles and so they're owned by a suburban husband and so on which in these giant pickup trucks are getting bigger and bigger every year to supposedly support more and more heavy workloads and are not used for work and so this is the SUVs for the same thing it's like you want to represent sort of a ruggedness what Japan has been doing is very different and in many ways asymmetric to this is that they're conforming they don't care they about so much about the past there's no real nostalgic you know, let's go back to an iconic shape. I think some Japanese may have beginnings of feeling of nostalgia. So we might see something in the future which has the shape of an older, let's say, 240Z or something like that. They may come into Japan, but I think the interesting thing is that they hasn't come yet, whereas it's very, very common in the U.S. and Europe. And also, from that point of view, culture is like Japan has maybe, because they came into the car world much, much later in the 1970s with a, as, a, as a brand, they're still at that phase of sort of, let's see where we're going with this. I also think, so for that reason, by the way, this is why Europe doesn't talk about Japan so much, because there are none of these nostalgic. The people who are in the car buying phases of their lives, they're, they're, they're looking for, like in, someone in their 50s, they'll be looking for something that r reminds them of their youth. So you're going to go back and get something that relives that, right? So you're going to get a, a Porsche or, or a Corvette. But in, in Japan, you can't go back to a 30, 40-year-old design from Japan because there would have been some cheap economy car. <laughs> you mm -hmm. want, there was no power age. There was no, no sports car age. They tend to be more futuristic as a result. So there's this question about being a little bit in a different phase of, of history. That's one, one narrative. The other narrative about Japan, again, I, I touched on, it on sort of being much more conformable, not having a strong an identity which may or may be very healthy i don't say one is good or one is bad but it's just an interesting observation the other thing i would be curious to see how it develops is that the technologically japan is still trying to push forward with things like not so much electric cars although they have some but i'm, I'm really curious about the mirai which is hydrogen fuel cell cars right. toyota i think that that's a very deeply misunderstood and deeply underrated that the fuel cell could be a lot more powerful. I did talk about this on a SIM car, and that requires a really deep, deep, long, long process of development. And I think the reason is that it's it is kind of the hybrid fuel before we're able to move to a much more electric future. But in the meantime, it's actually much more probable that we'll get to because it's conformable to the fueling systems we have in the sense that you fill up and then you go. 
that that it doesn't depend on batteries which cannot scale yet to the to the volumes that Toyota would need to sell millions of cars as they do. So there's these questions about not about efficiency but about being effective or efficacy. So how effective is is the future of car design? I give a lot of credit. I'll give a lot of credit to Toyota to kind of be thinking clearly about this. On the other hand, I'm also a little bit disappointed the styling work that's going on in Japan is is not at all attractive to me at least and I think I shouldn't count myself into the I think the I, I'm not typical what I wonder is what do people see in the design of Toyota cars to me just look they look like Toyota but Toyota is not a pretty thing mm. to look at so I don't understand why they're so popular I guess people aren't that concerned also the other thing they do is they change constantly and so there's no identity like we, we talk mm. what is a Toyota Corolla I have a, a Mercedes station wagon E-Class with a big big V8 engine mm. and I parked next to in a parking lot and next to a very new Toyota Prius and Prius was bigger than my car I couldn't believe it it was wider and taller than my, my E500 Mercedes wagon. Mm. And the Prius, I always thought in my mind, was a small car. And so what's happening again is that you get this non-stop move up, up into the sizes, giant, giant. And mm. so what they do is they make them bigger and bigger, and then they have to introduce something small to start up again on a, on a new path. Mm. So that's, and they do this so fast. <laughs> Toyota Corolla used to be small, and now it's big, you mm. know, and, and it's a, you know, it's How about advanced. the Nissan GTR? Because it's kind of a, it, it has a very distinct identity. You know when yeah, you I, see that a is, Nissan GTR, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, now that is an exception indeed, and I wish I wish they did more like the Toyota, you know, GT two thousand. You know, things really sexy cars. The the problem with the with the GTR thing is that it's too much, too too muscular and and not pretty. The Italians are famous for this design of of cars that have what I would say more feminine qualities, and and that's. That's what's missing, I think, also from... I think that the, the, the GTR also speaks a technological language. Mm. It speaks of not just power, but it just speaks of sophistication and, and wizardry in terms of technology, but in the, in the way that, uh, you know, a boombox speaks about music. Mm. Now, a boombox, remember them? So they were very, these very big, big portable stereos, barely portable stereos with lots and lots of switches on them and lots and lots of speakers on them, and you could play them really loud, but no one would call them a high-quality sound. So the purpose of the product was to showcase uh, this, the same kind of, of power. And that's where I would say that even Italians, I mean, this, a Lamborghini is very different than a Ferrari, even though they're, they're both very powerful. And the Lamborghini tries to be much more brutal in its, uh, in its appearance. And, and I asked this question, you, the prettiest car, here's a funny story, the prettiest car ever made, in my opinion, is the Lamborghini Miura, which I think is just unbelievably beautiful and it stays to that way to, the, to this day. And then I'm not the only one who says this. But I said to myself, why don't they just make a, a like in the sense of nostalgia, why doesn't uh, Lamborghini make a new Miura? Just update it, just like the Ford did a GT40, updated, you know, just bigger so that people fit in it and, and fixes some of the safety aspects and so on. And I heard back privately from someone that they actually looked into that, but they said that their design language today at Lamborghini is to be very angular, very brutal, very stealth fighter. So it's like it's, it, they have this language now they can't escape from. Their cars have to look that way. They cannot go back to a gentle, 
mm. sexy, you know, low profile anymore. And that's that's a bit of a shame because there are so many beautiful designs from the 60s. So if Toyota could go back to that that iconic first uh, Italian almost looking uh, GT2000 and make something of that caliber again, I think they, they could try to reestablish their identity in some way. But uh, maybe they'd have to create it under the ac the, the sort of the, the, the Lexus. If you see also, by the way, Lexus with the L, uh, the LFA, mm -hmm. again that says to me the same thing as the as the Nissan is that this is a very technologically advanced vehicle. It is superbly, uh, you know, designed and engineered, but it isn't pretty. Mm -hmm. It is brutal. It, it's sharp. It speaks to an engineer. It doesn't speak to an artist. So I, I don't know. I, this helps anyway, but I, I just I wonder if Japan maybe needs to build more on these soft uh, aspects because those are the things that people fall in love with. Those are the things that remain iconic forever. These are the, the objects which will be instantly recognizable by every child 30 years from now. Whereas everything else will be much more forgettable. I don't think the LFA is iconic to the point where people will just look back. I mean, the last such thing out of Japan was probably the Acura NSX, where it was a super, the first real Japanese supercar, though it wasn't as pretty as it could be. But to this day, when I see one, I'm like, yeah, that there's there's an iconic, beautiful car. Of course, it has the nostalgia of Ayrton Senna and the, the design, the, you know, the, the, the input he had into that, that car. But it's very few other cars from the 1990s 2000s that I'm going to remember from Japan and they've done well successfully you know as a marketplace but is are these really uh, the the only uh, qualities that we look for it's interesting that you mentioned this but just as I told you my wife is a fan of the Nissan GTR she aspires to drive that car it, it, it must has, be tough in in Singapore though huh yeah it is very tough in Singapore <laughs> but I but there's a lot of I mean it's kind of the aspirational brand for us but one of the things that you always uh, we always discuss about cars is that we feel that the Japanese car is more tailored for softly for human design use because we visit Japan every year so we sort of try to get design inspiration from them yeah, I yeah. think they do a great job of design but it's not what you speak of is this is this ergonomics and they are although I've seen many bad examples as well mm -hmm. I, I the pen varies widely I think maybe the examples I've seen were American and they kind of didn't really they were target. They were the American market. So here's how they do it. They make the American cars because they have a brand manager in America that goes back to Japan and says, "This is what Americans want." So Japan makes what what the brand manager in in the U.S. wants, what, thinks the market wants, and so that's why they when they come out in the U.S. they may not be anything like the ones in Japan, and they may change the interior, they may change everything about it. So I don't know again how much of that is true. So again, if if you're if you as a company are saying here's again Apple Porsche and Apple are similar in that way Porsche says this is what greatness means and we've worked at it for a long time we keep refining it and this is this is our tastes are 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 going to determine what you will buy on the opposite side you have Samsung which says we make everything for everybody you you have you want Galaxy which sub brand of Galaxy which sub sub brand of Galaxy we have thirty different screen sizes we have thirty products launch every month so they say something for everybody we cover the world we have everything for, and so there's this idea then what is Samsung what happens is then as the brand the brand no longer means anything mm. Porsche people immediately know what it means Samsung do we know what it means Toyota do we know what it means is it do I think of I mean if I was 
50, 60 years old, Toyota, I always think of Corolla because that's what I saw when I was young and that was a, that was the iconic car of my youth. But it, today it means something completely amorphous, completely undefined. So I, I, that's where branding, and I think the struggle they have and the reason in the U.S. they put all these different names out is because they want to attach meaning to the, the name that, that allows people to say, okay, I know what that means. That's what brand means. It's like, what is what is the meaning in the word? Again, I, I, I've been to Tokyo and Japan, you know, as I said, but look at the taxis. Why is it that the taxis are from the 1990s? They keep manufacturing them, and they are new constructed, newly constructed 1990s cars. Now, that's again because so the same thing happened in London is that they froze a design from the 1950s and now they're finally they're changing them but that from the 1950s that iconic design of the black cab in London in Tokyo it's like this you know Toyota Corona or whatever it was from 1990 that they keep kept on and 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 kept in production and and it feels it feels uh, the same as it, it did so why do you do things like that why do you stick with the formula why did you move forward there has to be a reason i don't claim to know it but i i'm, I'm just strictly observing this and try to pass on the observation others may be able to put it together mm. and actually so one one thought that came into my mind and also been also thinking about asking you is that in asia cars are considered a nationalistic industry when a country building a car means it's signifies its coming of age. I mean, Hyundai of Corolla, Proton in Malaysia, Tata Nano in India, for example. And I, yep. I have not seen any prominent Chinese car brands yet, but I think that will come at some point, given that... Yeah, and there are hundreds of them. <laughs> there yeah. are hundreds of them. We, yeah. Correct. There will soon be one that... The, but being that being said, even even from what you were telling me about um, Japanese car, there is still the lack of identity even till today so so that's probably is going to it has a it, it does it just means that the new car companies are going to be building cars that defines the more the modernity of the car industry rather than going backwards to look back in history like well one, one thing that may help just because in japan most people cannot own a car longer than a certain time mm -hmm. here's an interesting because of the regulation that you have you have to have this very expensive inspection process after I think the car is four years old you have to pay thousands to have the car uh, certified to continue being driven and that was imposed by the government in a way to take old cars off the road but that was imposed at a time when cars at four years of age were falling apart so what what the because those laws still exist a lot of those cars now get exported as used cars and they end up in Asia and in Africa and everywhere else sometimes they take the engines out and they sell them in the, even in in the US as replacement engines because they're fair, they're almost new and but they, but as a result of that legislation there are no old cars on the road nothing even like 10 years old i mean maybe mm. some some very very specialized the uh, culture you know there's this culture uh, you know right uh, uh, racing culture or you may have this kind of modification culture that that a couple of youths uh, young people will will modify cars and play with some old cars and so on and so on and i think those cars have must must have some allowance to be on the road but the average person will not see on the road a 30 year car a 30 year old car it's just there's no no culture of 
of used used old cars. Certainly no culture that you're going to go into your garage and fix up an old car and, and, and make it into some kind of a hot rod or something like that. It The space, people don't have the place to do such things. It's not, the real estate is so expensive. The parking spaces are so limited. So a lot of these things then, their car culture does not value something that's nostalgic, right? Because they're just, it's it's so rare. So I think that the, you know, in Germany, by the way, you have this, this concept of old-timer. Old-timer is an actual word that means a car beyond, let's say, 30 or 40 years of age. Then you have so-called new-timer. A new-timer is like 20 years of age. And so you have magazines devoted to people who restore, collect, trade either 30, 40-year-old cars, 20-year-old cars. And so there's this, you know, there's people devoted to old-timer Porsches or, or new-timer Mercedes. And they just, there's really absorbed about that particular slice of history and that slice of a brand. Mm-hmm. Again, that cannot exist in Japan. And so for that reason, if you're an auto manufacturer, and yes, you, you, you probably are thinking about the U.S., but you're going to try to make your lean production system pump out the chassis and the bodies and the, and the, and the panels that serve a global market with, with fine adjustments all along the way. And these are all expected to last 10 years and then no one looks, looks backward. You just keep moving forward. Mm. But that as a, as a consequence means that you don't have this deep sense of, of identity. So maybe I'm giving myself an explanation that may or may not be valid, but I'm just putting that out there as a, as a, as a, as a question mark more. Yeah. And, and it's just an observation of their, of their, of their uh, simple um, law that seems, exists. Seems that the car industry is a global phenomenon and there are two potential disruptions coming. One is already happening, which is Tesla with the electric car. And there is this rumored Apple car which I think is probably what you talk about in the watch situation where you're putting a computer software injecting into the system mm-hmm. and disrupting the market. Where do you see these two efforts go with respect to the car industry? I mean, thinking about makers like Toyota, you're thinking of Ferrari, where do they sit then in the car industry? Because, well, so firstly, so when I, I have this instrument I use, which is called the Innovator's Stopwatch, is so when I look at at, at, at an industry, I ask myself, at what stage is that industry? Because the, the amount of disruption and the type of disruption that can occur is very different based on the stages. So if you have a new market, like the phone market, is a fairly new one, but the adoption hasn't yet re- reached saturation, you can have a different dynamism. So things change differently in, when, when penetration is at 20% than when it's at 50%. Then you have you know, then you have mid-market, 50% to 70%. And then you have, so like the iPhone is at that point in the United States today. And smartphones are at that point in the United States today. Um, and then you have saturation, which is like 90% and above. And that's the, the before the iPhone, that was the time of the of the mo- regular mobile phone. We had reached saturation. But that also took only about 10 years to get there. And once it got there, it, it got transformed into smart and there was a disruption that occurred. But when you look at this diffusion curve going from zero to 90%, there's a period before, uh, I should say 10 to 90%. There's a period before 10, which is very speculative. People don't know if it's actually going to take off or not. And there's a period above 90, which it's very, very commoditized and people are not competing on performance anymore. They're competing on other things. And so what types of changes in the marketplace will happen will depend where you are on this diffusion curve, that the core technology is going from from no one having it to everyone having it. Well, the thing with the auto industry is that we went from 
appeared where no one had it to everyone having it in different countries at different rates, but ultimately, let's say, the United States got to that saturation in about 1990. And that means that the U.S. has been running for uh, more than 20 years, 25 years, it has been running in a saturated mode, meaning that the only market is replacements or trying to get more than one car per person. And, and at that point, competition is very different than in the early years when, for example, Model T or, or the General Motors of the 1950s when they were innovating very rapidly on many, many dimensions, literally inventing new type, types of cars all the time. So nowadays, we're just kind of reconfiguring what we already have. When I ask myself, okay, what's the future of the car industry? Well, I have to say, well, in most markets that are saturated, the market is, is also building up a resistance to change because once you get really long-term saturated, then it becomes, it becomes so that almost nobody owns it. One, one aspect is that the economic life of the business is during that growth phase from 9 to 90. There is very little economic life after that in the sense that equity, someone who owns shares in that industry, is able to profit. Once you're in the pure replacement market, it's very difficult to get profit. You, you might get it, but then you lose it the next year. So the, the, the problem is then that in those late stages, the market switches to you know highly regulated, highly government-oriented, highly labor-oriented market, so that actually it becomes almost impossible to go out of business. Think about railroads today. Railroads saturated in the 19th century, but they still exist, and no one is talking about railroads as something that's going to be a growth industry. Nobody talks about railways as something that you're going to make a lot of money in as a, as a shareholder. And in fact, a lot of the discussion about it is infrastructural. Do we keep this this railway going, or we shut it down? And and so governments step in and make make the discussion go one way or the other. So, at least in the U.S., Europe may, may be moving slightly in the new direction because some technology comes in and allows you to redefine the railway. Like if you can make it much higher speed, then you come in and you you can reconstruct that industry. Which then brings me back to this question: the automobile industry could, through an infusion of new technology, go through a disruption at this very late stage. But you've got to fight through the regulations. You've got to fight through those who say that the vested interests are the incumbents and the incumbents are not allowed to fail. If you do not allow failure, then you do not allow any you do not allow somebody to take their place and that's typically what's going on in very old industries same with the energy sector same typically with most transport transportation sectors in markets where where things are still going like we see in China you see this vast explosion of brands vast explosion of, of, of production not necessarily innovation although some may come in but if you introduced into China today electric technology nobody would would blink an eye they would just keep going and then we're gonna get more cars out there to more people and they'll just absorb that technology so the question is when it's not about there's a different characteristic of, of of both the types of innovations that are allowed and both of the types of innovations that are, can be disruptive at different stages of the game. And so my expectation is that the car market in the developed world is, is very rigid, very difficult to change. And so you've got to study it with the lens not just of like Moore's Law, but you've got to study it with the lens of political resistance how likely is it that you're allowed to make a change? Like Tesla tried to make a change in terms of the way it sells cars because as an electric car, you don't need to buy your car from the service station. The The comical aspect of buying a car today is that you go to a place where you get it repaired to go buy it. Most of the money is made in repairs, and that's a bit of a, of a strange moral hazard 
you know, why does the the mechanics sell cars? <laughs> because he expects to make money sell, fixing them. So why is the car breaking? Why, why shouldn't we have cars that don't break? So if the car didn't break, then, then the mecha mechanic shouldn't be interested in selling it. And the mechanic is the one that actually has the the right to sell the car. That's the situation we're in right now. Your, your, your government tells you that, no, 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 only mechanics can sell cars. But I just invented a car that doesn't need a mechanic. The mechanics are saying, no, I'm never going to sell it. So how do I sell a car that doesn't break down? Mm -hmm. And so the answer is, no, you cannot sell a car that doesn't break down. It's illegal. That's what Elon Musk has to fight it through. So it has nothing to do with what customers want. It has nothing to do with the technology or the value created by technology. Because you're so late in that stage, as I said, that the, the discussion is purely political. Nobody cares about improvements. Nobody cares. They mostly care about holding on to what they have. And if there's a threat, as a bacteria that needs to be destroyed. So, so innovation is a pathogen. Innovation is harmful. That's, that's the situation you're in, in an industry that has allowed itself to go so late post-saturation. And that's the tragedy is that we should have been doing this in 1990 or prior, even in 1970s and 80s, with new technology. Unfortunately, digital technology, battery technology, was not ready to be transformative at that time. So by the time it's ready, it's like we have incumbents that are saying, essentially, in collusion with governments, that no, it's illegal for you to make improvements and that save the planet. Now, what happens is you never can stop innovation. Here's the funny thing. As, as negative as that sounds, the positive angle of it is that there's always a divide and conquer strategy, which means you'll find someone, a weakness in the grid, and you'll, you'll exploit that. And you'll find someone who'll, who'll say, you know what, I, I, I'm a little bit more 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 progressive where I live. So l l go ahead, you can sell Tesla in, in, in my small state somewhere. We don't have car makers, they don't have a lot of power in, in where I live. So then you get there and you make so much value creation. People actually love the product, they, they migrate to this place just to have it, right? You, you, have, you have a situation where freedom just causes more and more brilliant, uh, and, and then you can't ignore it. So the, the tactic of Uber and others as well is to go in and actually, even if it's illegal, go ahead and do it and prove the value to, to the end user. And so you prove things by, by, by example, and you demonstrate just how you take the power away of, of the incumbent by, by, by simply letting people be happy. And so that this, that's a tactic that was used as sort of tactic of dissent that was used against authoritarianism uh, for many decades by, by people who had hunger strikes or whatever they, they did. Writing poetry is very, very, it can be very powerful that way. So anyway, the, the thing is, the divide and conquer strategy is what works at this late stage in a market that does not permit you to make changes. But in non-consuming markets, you can step right in with your technology and nobody cares whether this thing is running on, on chickens or, or they, people want cars. And if the, your car is better, they'll take your car. So if your car is cheaper, if your car runs, runs more efficiently, doesn't need to be repaired, they'll take it. Same thing was going on, by the way, in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, Volkswagen came in with a car that was not in any ways ostentatious and big and heavy and, and powerful. Volkswagen won on the basis of being humble, and, but very economical and very reliable. And at that time, in the 1960s, the U.S. said, okay, come on in. We don't care if you come in with this ugly Beetle or Toyota Tercel. You go ahead. You know, we're, we're open because there's plenty of opportunity for everybody. 
But later, later, seventies, eighties, they said, "No, you can't. You can't come in anymore. We 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 were going to lose jobs." And so the politicians would stay, would try to you know increase tariffs or do whatever they can they can to protect their their market. So there was no discussion of protectionism in the nineteen thirties. Well, that was the depression. Let's let's say fifties and sixties in the United States, right? Or even in Europe, they were fine with someone coming from the outside. But they became very protectionist as we get reached saturation. So this is the, the what I call the stopwatch: is that you look at the diffusion curve and say, where are we on that curve? Your tactics have to evolve to match the situation that you're in. So one aspect of Tesla that that is worrisome, though, is they are targeting the most difficult market. They're targeting the United States, and Clay would suggest that that if you wanted to introduce electric cars, go to China. Make them cheap and and flexible in China, and then evolve your strategy to build the next Lexus, and then come to the United States because that's what Japan did. Japan starts with a Corolla. They're very shabby. They build a few in Japan. They bring it to America at very low prices, but that they they start to win on reliability, and then they start to get better and better. And what they started out as the cheapest car in the market then becomes the most expensive car in the market. It thirty years later. That is the disruptive approach. You win, and, you, and Toyota won by starting out very low. That's the low end approach. Now, Elon Musk doesn't believe this. He believes in in either new market strategy or just saying, "Look, I can't. I don't have time." I think the way the way I think about Elon Musk's strategy is that he's just really impatient. He doesn't want to wait thirty years for cars to be the way he sees them, and so he'll just go ahead and shoot and ask questions later,、uh, as it were. So he's not really a business strategist; he's an engineer. How do you think Apple would do it then? Well, that's a great question. I think that the, the challenge for Apple would be—I'm going to just say Google as well—is that they, these are basically a software. And so, so Musk is coming as a hardware engineer almost. He's looking at it primarily as asking, look, the core issues, the powertrain, the the energy storage, and the pollution, and all these aspects we're trying to eliminate. So, but the the way I would approach it from a, a software point of view is it was asking the more the core, the job to be done. What Google has been saying already is that we don't believe car ownership is the way of the future. We believe car sharing is the way of the future. And so, the vehicle that is going to be shared is an autonomous vehicle. And so, they're thinking of transportation as a service. So if you were to ask people today, especially why did you buy that car, is mostly they say I don't care about the car. I want to make sure that I I have reliable transportation. I want to have I I bought what the dealer was selling me. Most often, this is this is the case. I'm going to give you as my parents. My parents buy their cars based on what is the nearest dealer to their house, and they walk go to that dealer and say I'm here to buy a car, and the car that they, they, they buy is the one that the dealer tells them to buy. They they have no. Notion or or decision in maybe they just want it to be a little bit bigger than than the one they had last time. That's all they care about. So it, it, many people behave this way, and then if that's the case, I don't say that's foolish. What I'm saying is that they don't care. They want ten feet of car, or they want three meters of car, like you buy a sausage, or the way you buy a commodity, you buy it by the pound. And so people, if they say, "I want to buy transportation, and I want the transportation to be this big," then Google steps in and says, "Well, instead of buying it, how about you just, you know, download this app?" Okay, what, what now? Tell me more. And then say, "Oh yeah, just download this app. Anytime you need to go anywhere, just press this button, and by the time your code is on, the car will show up." Okay. Done. And so, how much do I have to pay? Oh, just pay three hundred dollars a month, which is what you would have paid to own the car in the first place. 
done, good, I'm ready. If you can deliver that, people will be fine with that idea because what they care about is not owning the car. Most people, again, the, the car fanatics are like, oh, I wanted to be sexy. I wanted, like I was saying, you know, I want to have the sensations and this and that. As people want to buy transportation, they are completely oblivious. And a lot of car fans are extremely, they're extremely scornful of this type of audience. They say, no, no, cars are not transportation. They're objects of desire, they're this aspiration, there's, there's sensations, there's passion, there's lust, there's sex, there's everything bundled up into this thing that they call a car. But I'd say that's like less than 1%. It's like the technology guys talking about feeds and speeds. <laughs> Most people just want to have a computer. They want to read their email. They think the internet is is the internet explorer. They think that button there is email. You know, it's it's not. It's like was for AOL. They, it's not even a computer. It's a little blue button that I press if I want to have. Uh, you know, uh, they think Facebook is the internet now. If you think Facebook is the internet, then maybe you think getting an app to, for transportation is going to be just fine. So that would be Google's approach, and they're going to say, "Just uh, sit in our car." And by the way, it's never mind about the three hundred dollars. Let's just you watch TV and, and read while you're being carried around, and we get to sell you stuff in the car. And who would say no? I mean, say, "Oh, you mean you mean free transportation?" Yeah, what about free transportation? What do you think of that? And they'll say, sure, I'll, I'll go every day on, on your Google car. And then they hope that people will buy stuff. I mean, if that's the case, if that's the business model, Amazon's going to make cars. I mean, why, why not just give the car away for free and hoping that people will use it to shop? So that you say, by the time you get to your destination, all the stuff you bought will be there waiting for you. So you go to work and all the groceries will be waiting there, or even better, or maybe more appropriate, you, on the way to work, you decide what you want to buy, and we'll, we'll take you home, and the food will be in the car with you. And when you arrive home, you take the bags out and you put them on the, on, on the, in the fridge. Why, why, who would say no to that? I mean, that would, be, that would be a dream. Most people say, you mean I save time? I save money potentially, and I get to do my shopping and everything else, and, and you're telling me all this for free? Boy, that would be fantastic, right? And at the same time, you're saving the planet. So all that happens, by the way, another contender would be Uber. And Uber would say, hang on, we're in this service of moving people around already. So they're going to say, well, we'll make our cars, and we'll make our cars autonomous. So we don't even need drivers anymore. Boy, think how much we could save. We make, we make our cars, we make the utilization of the cars nearly 100%. That means that car that may cost us 20000 to manufacture, normally they would try to sell that for 40000 No, no, we keep it at $20,000. We never bothered to like make, make the car makers rich. We'll make these $20,000 electric cars which we're going to have very low running costs because they're electric and we're going to get subsidies as well. We'll make them autonomous and we'll buy, you know, here from Nokia and then they'll be, you know, have all the maps and all that stuff in them. People will, will, will pay for the ride like they do for public transportation. There could be another business model. So they come in and so what is Uber? Uber is an app. What is Google? Google is an app. What is Amazon? Amazon is an app. So here's apps that change the car business and they don't blink twice. These companies will not blink twice to think that we are manufacturing these things. Because mm. they're going to call China and they say, we want you to contract manufacture these things. And then people are like, no one contract manufactures cars today. Why not? Because the car business is built around production systems. It's not built even around the product itself. It's built around the factories that make them. It's been like that for 100 years. Why? Because they cost billions of dollars. Why did they cost billions of dollars? Well, because they're made of steel. Why are these made of steel? Well, because we had no other alternative 100 years ago. But if you told them, but now you have alternatives, you have composites, you have 
you have exoskeletons, you have all these different construction techniques, you have 3D printing, then they're going to say, yeah, 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 but we still have these factories that are underutilized, we're going to still make stuff out of steel. And so you know, the new guys are not going to look at it that way. They'll say, we have an app, we have an idea, we have a business model, we have users, we have all the things we need, we, just don't, have, we, have, we don't want to buy these steel cars. Who can we call to make new, car, new cars cheaply and out of the right material and, and with the right powertrain? You see how this plays out? So all of these guys are not in it to say we're going to go kill Detroit. They're all in it to say we want to improve our business model. We want to make more money in the way we want to make money we've made, uh, like we've made money in the past, which is either advertising, shopping, or services. And they come in and say the vehicle is the tool, just like the iPhone is the thing, or the, uh, or the Android device is the thing that enables the service. And so that's how it's going to happen. And of course, Apple steps into this and say, well, we're the iPhone. We're going to be the car as well, and then you know the services are all going to be essentially apps that are right on top of us. So they might say this again, this vehicle, maybe it's owned, maybe they want to attack the passion angle because that passion angle is still going to be around, and they might actually t absorb that one or two percent of the market that's willing to still pay for owning the car. I, I don't know, I don't know, but I'm, I'm saying there's going to be room for all kinds of experiments. No more, however. The, the business will be run on the basis of $2 billion capex for tooling that makes sheet metal stampings, which is exactly what the industry is today. Whether it's China, you know, India, Korea, Japan, Europe, they're all about $2 billion plants stamping steel. It's ridiculous. I mean, I visited with Gordon Murray, and he, he, point, you know, he showed me his ice cream method, which is one-tenth the cost and, and a thousand times more flexible than steel manufacturing. And that open my eyes and you can see the IP and then they're an IP company here's a, a company that says we have the intellectual property for a production system that is completely different and new and they're like arm in the PC in the PC world or, or the, the the mobile world and they say we'll just license you the, the instruction set and you guys go build, build these new types of factories so the fabs will build will fabricate there'll be contract manufacturing which doesn't exist today and that'll shape the industry if you follow this logic of the industry starting with jobs to be done going through production systems and, and innovations around materials and then your flexible manufacturing and you know all these things and contract manufacturing which doesn't exist it all falls into place and then the disruption happens and then the go-to-market strategy the divide and conquer then it's going to happen. How quickly? We'll have to see. But I think, I think that when, when, when the floodgates open, I think every single Facebook may make a car. Why shouldn't they? Wow. Now that is really, we went through two and a half hours talking about so many different things. And the final question for me to you is how do my audience find you? Um, well, I'm uh, on Twitter. I should be on others as well, especially in, in Asia. If you guys want to follow me on Twitter, please do so. But uh, it's at ASYMCO. I'm willing to get any, if you follow me, so ASYMCO, if you, if you, if you want to suggest to me better, uh, more appropriate uh, uh, social media for you, let me know. But I'm there on Twitter. I'm also asimco.com on the web, which is a blog. It's about 1,700 posts there I've written over a few years. That's about it, I, I guess. I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to connect there as well. I know folks do. Uh, so I'm an influencer there for, for what it's worth. So just look for my name, uh, Horace uh, Bedu, uh, uh, on LinkedIn as well. Mm. And I'll definitely put the link to your two of your best podcasts, which is The Critical Path and Asimca as well. So do you Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Horace, for coming on this show. And I would definitely look forward to talk to you again.